This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. This week, George Mason University professor Sam Lebovic teaches a class about U.S. politics and economics of the early Cold War period in the late 1940s and 50s. All right. Uh, So the last couple of classes, we've been talking about the Red Scare, kind of the impact of the Red Scare in policing the edges of American politics. Uh, Today, today we'll be looking at kind of the rest of the political landscape, right? beginning to look at what people now refer to as the liberal consensus of the 1940s and 1950s and trying to work through what actually is happening in terms of the kind of main thoroughfare of American politics, the possibilities for political action and the way that people are thinking about politics in America in the 40s and 50s. Uh, you also had three readings, all of which in different ways deal with the kind of idea of political ideology and all of which share a set of assumptions about the way that ideas matter to politics. Um, So we'll sort of be thinking today about how they kind of frame those ideas. Uh, And this is a kind of transition class where we move from kind of discussing the geopolitics of the Cold War and the Red Scare into discussing sort of what else is happening in America in the 1940s and 1950s. Um, So shall we start with Daniel Bell, everybody's favourite reading from today? I assume there are very few questions about this one. (coughs) Yeah. So is he essentially saying that, like, the kind of political ideologies that came about in the imperial age are just kind of not worth it anymore, and these new kind of, like, focusing on economic issues and focusing on the government and just making that one country the best it can possibly be the best way to go? Yeah. Right, I mean, he's basically... That's a nice summary of a complicated argument. Uh, He's basically saying that the big political ideologies of the 19th century in particular have kind of run their course. They're out of steam, and there's now really politics is about management, you know, the adjustment of kind of things within a kind of general consensus. Um, And it's, you know worth thinking about the argument a little bit. Uh, you know, it's an argument that people have made at various times in history. I don't know, have any of you read uh, Francis Fukuyama in another course, The End of History? And he makes a very similar argument in the early 1990s. So it's an argument that keeps coming back. But if you're going to make that kind of argument, the 50s isn't a bad place to do it. Bell writes this in 1960. Right? Uh, this is Bell. Uh, he was uh, born Dan- uh, Daniel Bolotsky. Child of immigrants, Jewish immigrants in New York, goes to City College, New York, back when City College, New York was free, uh, which is a nice thought. And because it was free, people there could spend a lot of time sitting around the cafeterias arguing politics, which I don't know how much time you spend in the JC, but you're not talking about socialism and the Spanish Civil War, probably, in the same way that Bell and his friends were, right? And he constantly frames issues in these large, sweeping uh, historical frames, right? So he says, as Jacobs Nazi pointed out, the big ideologies of the 19th century have kind of run out of steam. What's an ideology for him? Remember the section where he... Yeah. He claimed that it's the conversion of ideas into social levers. The conversion of ideas into social levers. Great. What the hell does that mean? You don't know. Right. That's exactly the quote I have for you. So you're right on... But it's like, what does that mean is an interesting question. Yeah. I thought it was interesting where he starts talking about you know, how to get 
keep a moving social movement, you have to simplify your ideas. You can't be up in the clouds or bring it down to something that they really can either grasp or they like or it's going to do something for them, like what's in it for me. And then the uh, establish a claim to the truth. So, hey, this is my idea. It's not just something that's, you know, an idea. It's the truth. It's reality. And then going into the, uh, again, the commitment to action, you know, get people going. So it's kind of my take on, hey, let's get out of the, the philosophical part of it and get down into reality where you can get people on board. Good. Terrific. So this is exactly the kind of two concepts that we need to flesh out what an ideology is. Right? It's the way you turn ideas into action. Right? It's the kind of mechanism, the lever that does that. And the way you do it is in the three steps that Bob's just pointed out. Right? You have to simplify the kind of idea. You have to make a claim about it being truthful to the world. And then using that simplified idea, it provides you a framework to then go and act in the world, to make decisions about what to prioritise, what to emphasize, what deals you can make, what compromises are, are allowable, and what are not. Does this make sense? So in this framework, which you know, he also says has to appeal to an emotion. Right? It's not kind of purely about sort of rational sitting in a room, but it has to speak to you where you live on some level to get you kind of moving in the world. On this framework, what's an example of an ideology? Any of the big isms? will probably help. Communism. Capitalism. Fascism. Environmentalism. Socialism. Feminism. And if you kind of run through all of those and think about where are they in the 1950s, for most of them, they're not very operative in the 1950s. Communism and socialism in the American landscape are not super popular in the 1950s for reasons we've been talking about. Fascism, and there were American fascists in the 1930s, the silver shirts, They've kind of been completely discredited by the 1940s for fairly obvious reasons. Feminism. Where's feminism at in the 50s? Right? I mean, it's in a kind of lull. We'll talk a little bit more in later classes about what's actually going on, but people traditionally talk about feminism in terms of a first wave in the early 20th century focused on voting rights, and then a second wave emerging in the 1960s and 1970s. Environmentalism isn't really on the scene yet in any meaningful way. So there's actually kind of a lull here in some ways. What about religion? Is religion an ideology? In Bell's terms? It's a myth. It's a myth. Yeah. He's kind of slippery on where religion fits into this whole thing, right? I mean, some of that language there is where he gets less simple than in other parts. And he's got an argument that in some ways an ideology is secular and about action in the world, right? That you take the ideas and work out how to act in the world on the basis of them. Whereas religion, in his account, what are you supposed to do with the ideas? Are you supposed to change the world? What are you supposed to do with religious ideas? Use it to prepare for the inevitable. Right. So who do you change? Yourself. Yourself. Right. Right. For him, religion is a kind of framework that encourages adaptation of the self to kind of eternal truths rather than change the world in the vision of your kind of idea about how it should be better. Make sense? So he, in some ways, in the argument, begins by saying the big 19th century philosophies are what take the place of religion when religion goes away. And then that there's a kind of lingering version of religiosity that is much more like an ideology because it's much more about changing the world. Um, I don't think he basically can decide what to think about religion. I think the reason for that is the big framework he's got is a sort of very secular one. Right? Religion's gone away. 
and that he's going to be replaced by secular ideologies, but then he's confronted with a little bit of a problem in America in the 1950s, which is America, bless you, America is becoming more religious in the 1950s. Right? About 49% of people in 1940 belonged to a church. Right? It's up to about 69% by 1959. So there's actually an expansion in religiosity, and trying to work out what that's about is just a difficult question. Uh, but it has an impact on politics. Uh, most notably, uh, In God We Trust is added to the Pledge of Allegiance in 1954, and uh, in 1955, In God We Trust is added to the currency, which had not previously been in the currency, but is now kind of being mobilised as a symbol of a new respect for religiosity at the heart of American political culture. If you had to take a simple guess at why there's more religion in American political culture in the 1950s, what would you guess be? Because in communism, it's an atheist state. Good, right? To distinguish religious American liberalism from godless atheistic communism, right? And there's a kind of clash here going on. The problem with the argument, and I think it's one that a lot of historians have made, is that if you're someone who believes in religion, which, I mean, I'm, as we've talked about before, very secular, but if you're someone who really believes in religion, you don't think you come to a higher personal belief in God in the 1950s because it's helping America prove a point against the communists, right? I mean, deeply felt religious belief is something that's very personal. Working out why that evolves historically at different times is difficult. Okay, so he's got this idea that the kind of big ideologies have kind of gone away a little bit, and what's left is kind of a consensus around a bunch of technical, managerial kind of issues. What are those? What's the centre for him? So section on 373, when he talks about the welfare state, the mixed economy, and political pluralism. I want to spend most of today's class talking about the issue of the mixed economy. Do you know this phrase, the mixed economy? No is a fine answer to the question, if you don't know this, I can't. No? Not particularly? I think to understand what he's talking about, you need to think a little bit about how people thought about economics in the 19th century. Now, just bear with me a little bit. I know that when we talk about economics, it's never your favourite part of this class, but economics is interested in you even if you're not interested in economics. So I'll try to give you a bit of a gloss of what's happening. Uh, in the 19th century, how is the economy supposed to work in what's called the classical era? How many of you have done uh, microeconomics? Yeah. How does the class start in micro? What do you look at first? Man, that was years ago. <laughs> years ago. <laughs> A chart that looks something like this. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. yeah. What is that? Supply and demand. So what is the supply and demand chart measuring? How much, how many goods there are, and then what the demand those goods are and what's the relationship between the two. Good, and where they intersect, right, is where the demand and the supply work each other out in relation to each other and that'll produce the price for any good and that will determine how things are distributed in an economy. Does this make sense? This is roughly your understanding about how supply-demand works, right? The idea of it is that it's self-regulating, right? What Adam Smith called the invisible hand of the market, right? Demand and supply will kind of meet each other and that'll be a way to work out how the economy should work, and it should balance itself, right, and sort of become sustainable and optimise the economy generally for everybody. Right, through the 19th century, that's considered liberal economics, laissez-faire economics, and free economics. The only problem is that there are repeated 
crashes and depressions in the late 19th and early 20th century. Right? 1873, 1890s, and then obviously 1929 and the Great Depression. And so a lot of economists who think of themselves as liberals begin to question the assumption about how the economy should work. And the most significant of them for our purposes is uh, John Maynard Keynes, right, who in the interwar period really begins a series of explorations about how economies actually work in real terms. Right? And as opposed to focusing on microeconomics, he develops the discipline of macroeconomics, thinking about the system as a whole and how it's supposed to work. So if you were taking an introductory economics course in the 1950s, 1960s, you wouldn't start with supply-demand, right? which is how microeconomics starts. You start with the kind of, how does a price mechanism work in kind of isolation? The macroeconomic approach starts with the idea that a lot of things have to be in place before you can have a meaningful supply-demand relationship before a price system can work. And you sort of need to set that up before you can have capitalism operating on the traditional theory. The big intervention that Keynes makes in 1936 in a general theory of employment, interest, and money, his kind of big magnum opus, is to say that what matters most to the economy is aggregate demand, how much demand overall there is. Not how any individual consumer decides what price to set on things, but how much purchasing power there is in the economy overall. This is more easily understood with 1940s-era political cartoons, I think. The top is an economy where there are very few wages being paid to workers. People who are selling products are taking high profits. They're not paying many wages, which means there is the tank of purchasing power is low. People don't have money to buy the products, and therefore there is a smaller market to sell to, and the entire thing begins to slow down. You produce less. In the bottom image, more wages are being paid out, So you can tip those wages into the tank for purchasing power. There are more people with more money to buy more things, which means you can put more money back into production and the entire economy can speed up and grow and everyone can get more. Does this make sense? This is a similar representation of the same idea. You've got to spend to kind of kick things into operation. Once people are spending, it'll flow back to the worker and become a kind of virtuous (laughs) circle. Questions about this? Any questions? So the key challenge, then, is how do you make sure that there's always enough purchasing power in the economy? On the one hand, you need to kind of regulate the market a little bit to make sure that workers are being paid sufficient wages and that there's a kind of not a disequilibrium in the economy so that enough people can spend. And the second thing that you realise is that the government can actually act to stimulate demand when there's an economic downturn. At moments when there's less demand because people are getting forced out of work, the government can act to spend, to create jobs. Right? This is the kind of intervention of the New Deal. Right? You don't balance the books, you don't let the market fix itself, you act aggressively to spend to try to kick this process into motion again. And this will become kind of the orthodoxy of economics in the 1940s and 1950s, to the point that by 1965, Time magazine will put Keynes on the cover and write a lead article, we're all Keynesians now. Right? This is kind of the consensus. This makes sense? So there are some reasons 
to think that Bell is kind of onto something when he's focusing on this idea of the mixed economy, right? Mixed because it's neither a state-run economy nor an entirely free market economy, but a market economy in which the state intervenes. How does the state get its money to then spend and intervene in the economy? Taxation, right? This is a chart of the amount of Americans who are paying federal income tax every year. So massive, the top line is as a percentage of the workforce, the bottom line is as a percentage of the population. Right? And there is a massive spike there during what? During World War II. Okay. 26% uh, of the workforce files as federal income tax in 1940, 87% files a federal income tax in 1946. And then it stays after the war as the kind of norm. The other thing that will be slightly surprising to you is these are the top marginal tax rates in the period. Right? So the top earners in the 1950s are paying 90 cents on the dollar. Right? It's not that many people, but that's a high tax rate right? to redistribute, to take the wealth and put it back into general circulation. Uh, the big drop that happens in two steps comes in which decade? In the 80s. That's the Reagan tax cuts that really drop the top rate below. Uh, we talk a lot about the top marginal tax rate, but... I mean, if you're taking history courses, the chances of you being in the top marginal tax rate are not as high as I wish they were. Uh, more important, and this is hard to read, I don't want you to focus on the details, is the middle, right? If you look at the kind of $5,000, $8,000, $10,000 range in the kind of middle income in these years, spikes as well in 1942, up from kind of 8 or 9% tax to 30 or 40% tax. So the top is getting taxed a lot more, but the middle is being taxed a lot more. Okay, so the amount of tax that's being gathered and being spent is one key indicator that there's much more of a mixed economy in the US in the 1950s. The second is that, in many ways, we've had a long period of working-class agitation that we've talked about in the course already, right? Violent strikes leading through the 1930s. In the 1946, there's actually another wave of strikes at the end of the war. Uh, something like 4 million workers go on strike in 1945-1946. So that militancy of the labour movement looks like it's going to continue as people demand higher wages. Uh, my favourite example of this is actually uh, the tugboat workers in New York City go on strike in 1946, which just shuts the city down because, like, no, f no fuel can get into New York. So the subway has to get stopped. It's just a kind of image of New York totally dependent on tugboat workers that we don't normally have. Uh, by the early 1950s and then by 1960, Daniel Bell will comment that actually the working class are pretty happy. They're not going on strike anymore. They've kind of calmed down. If anyone, the people who are angry and want to change things are the intellectuals. It's not the working class anymore. And part of the reason for that is that because of changes to labour law that we've talked about already, right? and then because of a set of agreements that are made in the late 1940s and early 1950s, uh, the working class are offered better terms for work. Right? The key example for this is uh, called the Treaty of Detroit in 1950, which is an agreement between the United Automobile Workers and General Motors that will apply across the automobile sector, which is kind of a leading sector of the economy. And the deal is basically, in exchange for guarantees to go on strike less frequently, to recognise the need for production, the union will get cost of living adjustments, so the wages will increase with inflation. They'll get pension plans, and they'll get health insurance, and they'll be kind of looked after as part of the middle class. Right? 
And at that point, labor militancy kind of calms down and the workers have the kind of consumer power that they said they needed in order to keep the economy rolling. Right? The idea is let's have a bigger pie for everybody and then we'll need to have less conflict. Uh, the third example I'll give you to sort of show that there's an emerging consensus around this idea of a mixed economy is the fact that the political parties are really confusing to people in the 1950s. This is a cartoon from 1957. The joke is what? How are you supposed to tell what the difference is between a Republican and a Democrat? Which I imagine this feels like it came in from outer space to you at this point, given polarization. But actually, the parties are very complicated in the 1940s. Uh, each party really has an internal division within it. The Democrats have a kind of northern wing, right? urban, based on working class votes and African American votes. In the South, the Democratic Party is the party of white supremacy. Right? And so they're very opposed on a lot of issues and don't work very well together. The Republicans are also divided between what were called liberal Republicans, progressive Republicans in the Northeast, and more conservative Republicans, particularly in the South and the West. Right? Uh, and so voting doesn't happen in the way you think it would happen in the 1950s. There are weird kind of coalitions that are forming. Um, the key sign that politics is a lot closer together, that the parties are a lot closer together in the period than they are today, is that in 1952, both the Democrats and the Republicans go to Eisenhower and ask him to be their presidential candidate. Right? Which, with the partial exception of Bloomberg today, it's hard to imagine any other candidate that both parties would be like, actually, we think that person's pretty good for us. That would be fine. No real difference here. And then Eisenhower continues a lot of New Deal programs around government spending in the economy and gets some flack from conservatives on his right flank. And he writes a famous letter back to them and says, should any political party attempt to abolish social security, unemployment insurance, or eliminate labor laws and farm programs, you would not hear of that party again in our political history. Right? The idea that the new norm is the mixed economy, we have to continue some of these programs. Does this make sense? Yeah. There's actually a famous American political science article written in 1950, a big report, that says the pl American political system is really falling apart because the parties are not polarized enough. And like we need to make the parties more polarized so voters have a clearer indication when they go to the polling booth about which party they're voting for, which I guess be careful what you wish for is the answer to that report. Any questions about this? You doing all right? Yeah, Jim. Does the government have a lot more money from, uh, I mean, during the war, with all these extra people working, a lot of taxes coming in, but a lot of that money, government money, was being spent on, on war goods, ships and tanks and so forth. As soon as that was over, they had a pot. So was it easier for government to intervene when they had all that money? Yeah, I mean, it's something I want to develop in the next part of the class. But the key question is, all we've done so far is talk about the fact that the government should intervene in the economy in various ways. We've said almost nothing about in what forms it should intervene. And there's a lot of different ways and different places government can spend money to stimulate the economy. Right? In the war, for obvious reasons, it was in wartime. Right? I mean, one of the reasons that is very, uh, in military purposes, one of the reasons that Keynesian economics is really good during a war to kind of gin up spending is you can't produce too much. Right? I mean, the thing about producing bombs and planes is they keep getting themselves broken 
during the war and you've got to keep producing them, you can't have an overproduction problem. Right? What that's going to look like in peacetime is a more difficult question. But we'll sort of turn to that now. It's a good question. Where is the money going? I think the way to do that is to turn to uh, Schlesinger's piece, which hopefully was a little bit easier for you to make sense of, although you did well with Bell. You know, Schlesinger's writing in 1948, right? and he's arguing that there's, there is a sort of consensus forming in the middle of American politics. Right? He calls it the vital centre. Right? That's where we need to be. Not too left, not too right. He makes a kind of helpful argument, I think, that we normally think of politics on a left-right spectrum. He actually tells us in the beginning of this piece where that comes from. Where does the idea of calling more progressive parties left and more conservative parties right come from? French Parliament. It's the French Parliament during the Revolution, which is where people were sitting during those discussions. Right? And that's kind of given us this left-right spectrum that we've kept to this day. And then Schlesinger says, this doesn't work very well anymore to make sense of politics. How come? Yeah. Uh, he argues it's more of a circle. Yeah. And that you can't really define communism and fascism on a traditional left and right scale. Uh, and that the left-right scale kind of works more to the center, like the non-communist left and the non-fascist right. Good. He actually says, if you keep going too far to the left, you end up, sorry, you end up taking away property rights and stepping on individual liberties, right? And if you go too far to the right, you do the same thing, right? And so you also end up, if you go too far on either end of the spectrum, you come back around and it forms a circle and you end up at the bottom. This makes sense? Right? This is an argument you should be familiar with. Like a lot of people have compared Hitler and Stalin over the years and said, you know, they're basically the same typology, even though they understand themselves to be on opposite ends of the political spectrum. Right? And so he argues, given this better understanding of politics, where do you need to be? You need to stay in the centre, right? Because if you move too far to the left or the right, you end up creating deep problems. When you read this, how many of you had heard of Schlesinger before reading this piece? Okay, so those of you who haven't heard of Schlesinger, did you think that he was a conservative or a liberal? Or were you not sure? I guess maybe liberal. Okay, how come? Um, probably just because in that time period, if you were conservative, you wouldn't be afraid to just claim everyone on the left is a communist. Uh-huh. Sam? Um, given that he's advocating for what's essentially horseshoe theory, I don't think he was too far to either side, but I would also agree somewhat liberal. Yeah, so somewhat liberal, but he obviously fancies... I mean, he's making a strong case for the centre is the place to be, right? But he fancies himself, if you read the piece closely, as a person of the liberal left, the non-communist left. His model, when he's looking to Europe, right, are the non-socialists, uh, the non-communist social left, right? It's his idea about where we should be, right? Um, he actually was very involved in democratic politics for his entire life. Right? set up the Americans for Democratic Action, right? one of the key kind of the first super PAC, one of the key lobby groups of the Democratic Party, was the kind of court historian for JFK in the Kennedy years. Harvard historian, right? son of a Harvard historian. But he's making a case that the center is actually the right place for the liberal Democrats to be. 
right? And that where that is, is if you go too far further to the left from there, you basically run the risk of communism and a slippery slope down the road to stepping on property rights. If you go too far to the right, right, you also have a problem. Uh, it's kind of an interestingly conservative argument in its form before we get into its details. Right? But its assumption is, like, it's one thing... It's one thing to say, you know, if you're here, you can go to the left or the right with experimentation, right? It's another thing to say that actually the circle starts going like that, right? The minute you move from the center. It's unclear how much wiggle room Schlesinger thinks you have, and there's a kind of alarmist domino theory to the piece that should remind you perhaps a little bit of some of the geopolitics that we've been reading, right? Kennan's theory about sort of slippery slopes. But he's very vague about where it is. And so in that sense, it's kind of conservative of itself that it imagines that we're at the very top of the circle, right? The kind of the best place that you could be in the circle and that any step you take is already beginning the slippery slope, whereas maybe the top is a little bit more like a plateau and you have a little bit more room to manoeuvre. But the argument I want to make in the next part of the class is actually that the key form of the mixed economy, what actually is centrist liberalism in the 1940s, is pretty conservative for very particular reasons related to the Cold War. So you've got a consensus that the government should spend some money, should be involved in regulating the economy. Schlesinger thinks that this is, means that we're kind of in the realist left framework. Right? Uh, this should remind you of Sidney Hook from last class, right? realist liberalism. And interestingly, I don't know if you noticed, Daniel Bell's uh, article was dedicated to Sidney Hook. Right? So these people are all talking to each other in the 1940s, 1950s. I want to argue that that centre is defined by the Cold War in two important ways. So that what's seen as the leftmost edge of liberalism that you can really go to without risking communism, that that edge is defined by a couple of features of the Cold War we've been talking about. The first is what we've spent the last four classes talking about. Which is what? The Red Scare. Like the Red Scare. Okay. So we've just spent classes talking about the way that any left associations in the 1940s and 1950s runs the risk of having you accused of communism with huge personal costs to your role in politics. Right? And that this will shape the kind of possibilities for what policies are proposable and able to be put into play in the late 1940s. Uh, Truman's domestic program is referred to as the fair deal. It's how he kind of packages himself in this and in other ways. He's just desperately trying to inherit FDR's mantle. Right? So FDR had a new deal, I'll have a fair deal. Right? Some of the things he proposes in his fair deal are full employment, that there's going to be the government will spend money if people are unemployed to create work so that everyone can have a job. Right? What happens to that proposal? There's legislation drafted, passed through the Senate in 1946, and then it goes to the House. The House is more conservative. In the House... A substitute bill is proposed, written by the Chamber of Commerce, that says no full employment. What we should do is encourage maximum employment and no government spending, but we should just do fact-finding to work out what the best ways to create maximum employment in the private sector are. 
What is the argument of the proponents of the House bill to get rid of the Senate version? They argue that it is, quote, not greatly distanced from neo-Marxian thinking and is tainted by the uh, Keynes, Hansen school of thought that's dominant in the government, right? So an attack here that this kind of left intervention is too close to communism. The second example I'd give you from that uh, domestic program is one that is familiar to you today, which is Truman proposes that there should be government health and care, right? single payer. And there is a massive lobbying campaign by the American Medical Association and the private insurance firms that actually they spend uh, about $2.5 million on propaganda. The, the, the group in favour of single payer spends about $50,000 doesn't really have the kind of money to advertise back. And part of the advertising campaign against single-payer is built around the idea that this is worryingly communist in implication. And actually, one of the pamphlets quotes Lenin as saying, socialised medicine is the keystone to the arch of the socialist state. Uh, The only problem is that Lenin never said anything like that. Um, But it's one of the ways that government-funded healthcare is presented as being too radically uh, communist for the US. And that's created a very unusual situation in the US for an advanced industrial democracy in the second half of the 20th century, which is all healthcare has been private until the creation of Medicare in the 1960s, which is very limited. Um, and as you see today, that's an ongoing problem. Right? Um, Medicare, uh, medical aid insurance is tied to employment in the United States in a way it's not tied necessarily in that way in other countries. Yeah, Sam. Uh, I was just going to bring up how almost certainly relevant, not just that, but a few of the other things that text felt just in terms of modern politics and issues. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it definitely it rhymes with contemporary concerns, right? And the debates that were being had in the 1940s are the same debates that are being had today, which is, will the American people support single-payer health care, or is it too radical a proposal, and will it get you tainted as looking like a communist? Right? In the 1940s, that's what happened. Right? So the limits of what's proposable as part of government inter- intervention in the economy are defined in part by fears and accusations of communism. Right? On the other hand, the type of spending, as Jim was suggesting, that is very justifiable is military and national defence spending. Right? Eisenhower is attacked in the 1950s by some conservative Republicans who are like, why aren't we cutting taxes like Republicans have always wanted to cut taxes? And Eisenhower gives a national television address where he justifies why it's important for there to be a high tax rate, which is not like Republican politics in our generation. Right? And, but part of his case, he says, is that 70 cents on the dollar that you're being taxed is being spent for national security. Right? So we're not just doing this to make people's lives better, we're doing it to protect the nation and the public good. And what you then get in the period is a massive expansion of federal government spending if it can be justified as tied to national security in some front, not if it's tied to other social benefit. Uh, Fulbright, the senator, uh, actually kind of looks into this in the late 1960s, and he calculates that between 1945 and 1967, the federal government spent something like $904 billion on military-related expenses and $94 billion on all other functions. So that money is tied directly to military expenditure. And this 
actually takes on surprising forms. What it means politically is if you want to get something funded by the federal government, your case has helped massively if you can tie it to defence spending. So one of the big social... Oh, Bob. Wasn't that uh, an accusation in there that in that article that that's because people wouldn't be as inquisitive about where the money went because you saw it's national security or it's in defence. I can't tell you, you know, they're not going to dig as much into where the money's being spent, you know, versus you say you're going to put it against health care or unemployment insurance or whatever. So kind yeah. of under the secrecy there. There is a, a secrecy element to things like particularly defence budgets, right? But there's a public side of this too, that it also, I'm trying to argue, has a political logic that is just, people will stand up in public and say, we're willing to spend taxpayer dollars on national defence issues. We're not willing to spend taxpayer dollars on social benefit, right? Because actually the market should determine those things. But the market can't provide public goods of the sort of national defence requirements. For instance, one of the big public spending projects of the 1950s is the Highway Act, Massive expenditure to expand the highway system. Right? This is the era of the car, obviously. Um, but this is how it's defined. This is a 1970s pamphlet. Right? The National System of Interstate and Defence Highways. Part of the logic for highway spending is that it provides for mobility of logistics. Right? You can keep some of the nukes on the road so they, you, know, you can move them around from facility to facility. Right? And this is important to the national defence to have a strong infrastructure of transportation. The same thing happens with university and educational spending. Right? There's not a lot of federal spending on high schools for a variety of reasons, one of which is directly tied to sort of segregation, which we'll talk about in a couple of classes. But it's also not the kind of thing that people want to justify in America spending money on until the Soviets look like they're winning the space race. Sputnik goes up. The Americans' equivalent doesn't go very far. Right? The joke is it's called Kaputnik, not Sputnik. And then you get the National Defense Education Act, which will start putting a lot of money into science and math education in the US. There's also debate in these years about uh, science grant funding. Right? There's the creation of a National Science Foundation to try to seed money for medical and scientific advances that will benefit the nation. That never really has very much money. By 1952, its budget is about $3.5 million a year. Meanwhile, the Office of Naval Research alone is spending $120 million a year providing research money to universities to do weapons-related developments. Right? So in all of these ways, the type of money you can spend is best justified if it's tied to military or national defence purposes. Right? And I actually think these two factors go together to limit the range of possibilities in America in the 1940s and 1950s. On the one hand, if you propose anything that's too radical-looking, you can be accused of being a communist. On the other hand, no one will question federal spending if you say you're doing it for national security. And I want to give you one example to kind of s- suggest how these two things work in practice. This is Leon Kieserling, who I don't think any of you have probably ever heard of. Ah, maybe with one exception. He's very involved in New Deal politics in the 1930s. He comes out of socialist politics in New York in the 1930s. He drafts the Wagner Act, the Labor Relations Act, in in 1935. He's very committed to increasing working-class wages to make for a greater aggregate demand in the economy. He's a Keynesian. His wife, uh, Mary Dublin Kieserling, is very involved in consumer rights politics in the 1930s, again focused on making sure that people have enough money to spend so the economy can work. 
In the late 1930s and early 1940s, they spend four to five years uh, being investigated for communism in the loyalty hearings of the sort we talked about in the last few classes. What happens? They keep their jobs. She develops a series of stomach ulcers as a result of the stress. They keep their jobs, but they adjust their arguments. They continue to believe that the federal government has a big role in spending to make the economy work, but they stop making the case in terms of consumer demand and working class rights. Kieseling will become one of the key advisors on the Council for Economic Advisors, in which he'll continue to argue into the 1950s for big government spending, but he'll make the argument in terms of national security spending. He actually will be the economic consultant to NSC 68, which we read a few years ago, a few years ago, a few weeks ago, it feels like years, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, where he argues that actually to win the Cold War, we need a massive defence establishment. So he keeps the same commitment to kind of Keynesian economics, but trims it away from its connection to kind of working class radicalism and retargets it around national security interests. This makes sense? So Bell has an argument which we talked about earlier, which is that the end of ideology comes about in part because the ideas have kind of just run out of steam. Right? The big ideas have gone away. You can make a case that in some ways they just haven't, they haven't just gone away. But actually the history of McCarthyism and the Red Scare and the Cold War confrontation shapes what Keynesianism looks like in the US. So that it's focused much more around national security than around social expenditure. Right? Yeah. When Kiesling uh, moves away from uh, social uh, spending, has he got a dribble down theory that if you spend all this money on, on defense, some of it will go into uh, the workers and so forth? Yeah. So he's, not, he's just figuring out a different way to do it. I mean, in some sense, that would be an argument. I mean, what we're, try- we're at some level, and I've read more books, I mean, it's, you're trying to get into the psychology of an individual, and you've read some books about him where they say this is like a cynical sellout, others where it's the best in bad times, right? I mean, what version of that, how you'd want to pass that, I think is open to question. But the move is the kind of the broader pattern is what matters, is that you start saying the money goes through one route, not another, um, and then you justify that in various ways. Uh, you know, how effective the trickle-down is is open to question. Um, you know, but you know, I'm sure there are multiple ways that you can make your peace with that kind of move when what you're talking about is an ideological change that happens over 12 years. Right? You know, he gets older, his attitude to the world changes, he is, like everybody else, reading news about what's happening in Europe and getting concerned about communist aggression of his own. So... It's a complicated change, and which I'm presenting too simply. But the shift, I think, is interesting. Right? It's also the case that a lot of arguments about spending will say it doesn't matter where the money goes. It's just important that you put it into the economy, and it will then have consequences later. I think that that... I mean, I'm not an economist, but just acting simply logically, I think it kind of matters where the money goes, too, in the first instance. It, if it's going to have downstream consequences no matter where it goes well, then what matters less is its long-term consequences, but what are the short-term benefits of promoting particular parts of of economic activity? And putting it into defence spending promotes certain type of activity. I mean, this is a problem in universities today, that grant money goes to certain types of projects, not to others, which produces certain types of social benefit. If you're just thinking about the dollar, it's all going into the economy, but it goes into the economy in particular pockets that have an impact. Um, Make sense? 
Yeah. The argument against military spending is that um, it's a dead end. I mean, the jet that you build does nothing to grow the economy. It's great for defense as opposed to building a house or building a car or building machinery that can then be used to build more. <coughs> and that was the economist's argument against all this military spending. I had one a half a century ago who argued, you might as well just shovel sand. If all you're trying to do is pump money into the economy, shoveling sand is as unproductive as military spending, leaving aside the, the defense, you know, protecting us, because you're not creating productive goods. Yeah. Alex? I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. Like, you have, you know, Boeing can make military aircraft and then turn around and make jetliners for everybody else. Like, even if the products, you know, the fighter planes or whatever themselves aren't necessarily producing, they do contribute to companies that can then go yeah. on to produce consumer But Boeing goods. wasn't building... Oh, oh right. I'm talking 40s and 50s. I mean... Yeah, I mean, what you're talking about is a complicated set of debates that are worth having uh, about the sort of trickle-on effects and the flow-on effects of where the spending goes and working out there what the aggregate benefit is to the society versus what the particular benefit is. So one of the arguments for, say, the space race is that it's a kind of colossal waste of public money around prestige, but yet there are a lot of technological developments that come out of that that have downstream benefits overall. The flip side of that is to say who reaps the, most of the benefit of those social improvements, in the first instance, it's the companies that can have the patents, right, to deploy them in the commercial marketplace, having been underwritten by public spending. Right? So some people talk about this as the socialization of risk, but not of profit. Right? So, you know, there's a complicated set of arguments that we could talk about more probably for the rest of the semester. There's something I want to move on to today. Um, is there anything else we have? Any other questions about the kind of big picture pattern that I'm trying to show? Seem moderately clear? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Would you make a comment on Eisenhower's warning about the military industrial complex? Yeah. So he ends, right, his, by giving a warning about the military industrial complex, right, which he argues that there is too much spending going into military industrial activity, right, and they've kind of captured the public spending process. What to me is most interesting about it is the first drafts of the speech are actually, it's called the military industrial congressional complex because he's realized that actually what defense spending does is it compartmentalizes production so that every district has one part of the plane that is being made so that there is a congressperson who is invested in voting up as kind of pork barrel service to their constituents. And he realizes unless you, you break that, Congress won't make real decisions in the public good. It'll have too many incentives to kind of do service to industry. Um, I think he decides, I'm not exactly sure why, but he decides that calling it the military-industrial congressional speech in his farewell address would be too much of a shot across the bow of his fellow Congress people, and so he drops it. Um, but it's actually about the intersection between military-industrial power and congressional politics and the distorting effect that has on electoral democracy. Right? I mean, we could think here about the senator from Boeing, right, from, uh, from Washington State and so forth, people who are seen as advocates for particular interests. Right? Um, Okay. So the general argument here that we've been developing is Bell says there's an end of ideology, that there's a move to the centre. There's some evidence for that that we've talked about that feels kind of right. right. And then the question was, well, where actually is the centre? Right? 
in what's being called the centre, is it sort of more to the left, more to the right? How should we understand it? And I've sort of argued that the Cold War moves that centre more along a conservative spectrum than we might have anticipated from the way that someone like Schlesinger <coughs> understands himself, right? both because of ideological pressure and because of the ways you can justify defence spending. The one grand irony of American history, it's not the only grand irony, the grand irony of today's class is that the exact moment that we're talking about the emergence of a fairly conservative centre right, that has purged the left from American politics under the banner of McCarthyism. William Buckley comes along and starts the National Review. Right? And you read the kind of mission statement of National Review for today's class. What's Buckley so upset about in this piece? Was it that like, the media in his time wasn't really doing what it was supposed to do? It was kind of... From what I understood, it was kind of like supporting the government uh-huh. when it should have been critiquing it. Right. Critiquing it from which perspective? Well, was it that... From whatever opposite side that political spectrum that the government was in. Right. He thinks that there's too much of something and not enough of something else. He wants the National Review to fill the gap. Alec? From a lot of ways. Small government, less interference in his life. Small government, libertarian economics. Bob? He also said, you know, he needs the middle. He wants you to polarize either end. He wants to report whether it's on one end or the other, but report more on the conservative side, of course. But you know, don't take middle ground because it's, it's not taking anything. Good. On page 196, he very explicitly says, the middle of the road is repugnant. Like, why are we all in the middle of the road? Right? We're all too centrist. We're all kind of believe too much in big government spending. And he's arguing the media is part of this problem as well. There are no meaningful journals of libertarian conservative thought. There's no way for us to kind of get our ideas out. I mean, it's a kind of interesting how much he emphasises in this piece small magazines and also education. Right? The idea that you, you, through education you spread your ideas and that that gives you political power down the road. Uh, who was William Buckley? Uh, I've, seen him the, I've seen him described as like the father of conservatism mm-hmm. uh, and kind of the spiritual genesis of like the later Reagan era. Yeah, exactly. He was most famous as host of the Firing Line. Right, so he has a television show for a long time on PBS. Yep, Firing Line. We'll watch a little bit of it later in the semester, right, where we would have people on to debate. Uh, but he emerges in 1955, as you've pointed out, Cody, as a kind of godfather of an emerging conservative movement. He gets money to start this magazine, the National Review, to kind of be the central organ of conservative thinking. Right? Before that, he'd written two books. The first, on the left is a book of his, about his time at Yale called God and Man at Yale, which is a, basically an attack on the secular uh, propaganda that's happening in modern universities. So conservatives have been upset about political correctness on campus for like an awfully long time. This, the kind of current round is just the latest instantiation. That's his first book. His second book he co-writes with Brent Bozel, who's his friend from Yale. Uh, Bozel's the guy that's looking a bit stoned on the left. Um, it's called McCarthy and His Enemies, uh, and it's a defence 
of Joe McCarthy as a patriot who's been misunderstood by the American people. Okay? Um, Bozel, who here just looks kind of like a joker, actually is an incredibly important figure himself. He'll later be a speechwriter for Barry Goldwater and will basically ghostwrite Conscience of a Conservative as a kind of another figure establishing the ideological template for very uh, libertarian conservative republicanism, which will come back to the fore in the 1960s. Uh, what's happening in this piece, then, is basically the rearticulation of a libertarian philosophy. He argues on 197 that the competitive price system is indispensable. Right? It's a return to like 19th century ideas about the state needs to be out of the economy. In this regard, he's influenced by this guy, Frederick Hayek, an Austrian economist, right, who had formed his ideas about the need for the price mechanism to be the kind of centre of economic activity in interwar Vienna, where he was very upset by riots on the streets as people were trying to kind of imagine a more socialist Viennese politic. Uh, he then, in the 1930s, leaves Vienna, is brought to the London School of Economics. Now, the London School of Economics really wants some big-time economist to build their econ department because they're in the shadow of Cambridge, which is where Keynes is. So in terms of institutional politic, they're like, we need to do something different to Keynesianism. We need to hire some kind of rival. And they hire Hayek in the late 1930s, who then publishes a book called The Road to Serfdom, which will then become a sort of surprise bestseller in the United States. Uh, most university presses pass on it at first. They don't want to publish it. They think Keynesianism is popular, but then it gets private funding to a university press. And then a business person gives the University of Chicago enough money to hire Hayek for 10 years. So he's not actually being paid for by the university. He's being paid for on a private line. And these kind of institutional politics are kind of interesting, given where we are. George Mason, when it's sort of rising as a university in the 70s and 80s, realises it can't really compete with a lot of the kind of mainstream research universities that exist and needs to find a market niche and will begin hiring a variety of libertarian economists, including James Buchanan, right, and building an economic, economics department around the ideas of Hayek, right, uh, including we have a Centre for Hayek Studies at George Mason, Right? And this will kind of position itself as a kind of institutional home for a particular vision of the economy. Uh, what I want to just briefly do is, is give you an overview of how Hayek's book works. Um, and I want you to compare it to Keynes. So, can you see? This is what Keynes's book kind of looks like when you flip through. Right? which is to say it looks a little bit like what you expect an economics textbook to look like, right? A lot of figures, a lot of numbers, it's the math, right? It's a fairly big, heavy, hefty book called The General Theory. This is The Road to Serfdom. It's a lot smaller, right? And if you flick through, right, you'll see there is almost no math. In fact, there is no math whatsoever. It's a work of political philosophy, I raise this as a point, uh, not because there's anything wrong with political philosophy. I stopped doing math when I was 16. I prefer political philosophy. But a lot of libertarian economists will argue that after the 1970s and 1980s, that Keynesian economics doesn't work mathematically. 
right? The problem is that the numbers are not right. It doesn't produce the best economy. And that actually, if you do the math properly, like Milton Friedman, you need a small government to have a really vibrant economic growth. That's not what Hayek's argument is about. It's not about output or economic terms at all. It's about the political consequences of federal, of central government spending. Right? Actually, the math in the 1930s and 1940s is in the bigger book, is in Keynes. Right? But that's the road to serfdom, not as big a book. But even that's a little bit too much for 1940s Americans. It gets turned into a Reader's Digest version, which is this much, which is how a lot of people actually read it. But never fear, even your colleagues in the 1940s just wanted the overheads. They didn't want to read even a short book like this. I mean, you know, this is what this is like. They wanted the cartoon version, which luckily was published in Look magazine. So I can show you what the argument of the book was in basically uh, like a dozen easy steps. So this is how A Road to Serfdom makes its case. First, during the war, you want to do planning. Everybody likes planning, and they want to keep planning after the war. The planners say everything's going to be great once our plan is in place, but it turns out then they can't agree with each other. When they can't agree with each other, that makes people in the citizenry disagree with each other as well. And so then the planners kind of stoke up disagreement, and everyone's arguing about how should we plan the economy, what would be the best way to do it. Then they have to decide to sell people on their plan with propaganda and a controlled press, And then the way that you begin to get agreement is you get some big figure come along and make the case that this is what we should all be doing and that dictatorial figure will convince everyone that they are the ones who should really run the economy. Once you give that person power over the economy, that party will then take over the country and then they'll need to justify themselves to identify someone to persecute. And as they point out very helpfully here, in Germany, the negative aim was anti-Semitism. The experience of Nazi Germany is front and centre on their mind. Nobody opposes the leader's plan, and then as a result, you get told what to do. You get told how much you're going to get paid. You get told what to think. You get told how to... uh, spend your recreation time. I mean, again, the kind of, it's really interesting that the worst possible thing you can imagine in a dictatorship, well, the second worst thing, the worst thing is you get shot, right? Oh, obviously, that's step 18. The second worst thing, though, is that they break your golf clubs um, and that they make you, you do calisthenics. But that is the road to serfdom. 18 steps from you want to intervene in the economy to the jackboots are shooting dissidents. Now, Hayek hates the cartoon. Right? He's just like... I've got a lot of caveats in here, like I'm a serious political philosopher, this is just simple. simple. But it captures a key part of the argument, right? which is there are political, philosophical reasons not to do government planning or government intervention because the risks of a growing government state are too great, not to the economy, but to liberty and civil liberties and freedom. Hayek understands himself to be a liberal, And he will call himself a liberal his entire life. And this is one of the origins of the kind of confusion I'm sure you all have around the term liberal, which is like, what is a liberal? Is a liberal someone on the left? Or is a liberal a neoliberal, who is today someone on the right? In Australia, the the Conservative Party is called the Liberal Party because they were the liberals in the late 19th century, which is how Hayek understands himself. Uh, He's the defender of an old liberal tradition that's gone out of fashion in the era of Keynes. Earlier in the class we defined an ideology. What was an ideology? Bob, it had three steps. 
It's uh, to simplify your philosophy, like simplify your idea, uh, establish a claim to the truth, and in union with those two, demand a commitment to action, get, get people moving towards something. Good. This is an ideology under those terms. Right? It simplifies a complicated issue around how much, in, how much intervention a government can have in an economy. Right? It makes a claim to truth, which is, look what happened in Europe. Right? And then it says, as a result, you need to resist the encroachment of government authority into the economy and protect a market as free. Right? The seed for this will be planted in the 1950s with people like Buckley and Hayek, making the case for the ideas and then it will be transmuted into the Republican Party in the 1960s, particularly with the election of Goldwater, but then eventually particularly with the Reagan Revolution. Uh, And so one of the stories to come out of the kind of Cold War consensus period is that Americans refer to the kind of 1940s, 1950s as a liberal consensus, as a long new deal, as a kind of centrists where liberal ideas about big government dominated. But actually, the Cold War shapes very deeply where that consensus is. And it's not that far to the left, particularly when you compare the country to the kind of welfare states and government interventions that occurred in other European states at around the same time. But ironically, the partisan conflict that emerges out of the 1950s and 1960s has set the template for today as well, which is you have figures like Buckley arguing that we need to reject that fairly conservative centrism in favour of true conservatism, right? And that they will be true ideologues of the right, which is not a critique that Buckley would be offended by. That's how he understands himself, right? And on the other hand, the Liberals will be making a case much more similar to Schlesinger, right? Which is, the place that we need to be is in the centre. If we go too far to the left, we're communists. And I think that sets the template for both the major political parties from the 1960s to the present. We'll see how the Democratic primaries go today. Uh, But, you know, that's a debate that the Democrats are still having about do you go to the centre or do you go to the left? What's the path to electability? The Republicans haven't been having that debate for a while. They've had an argument about a vision of a conservative philosophy of government that stems from Hayek and Buckley, right? And so the American political spectrum is kind of skewed even though we think of the centre as something that was defined in the 1950s. Does this make sense? Any questions before we begin to wrap up? Simon. Mention something about Ayn Rand being the high philosopher of the quote-unquote conservative libertarian movement. Yeah. I mean, that's something to mention about Ayn Rand. One of the things that's interesting about Rand... I mean, I don't find her that interesting, but one of the things that's interesting about Rand is the relationship with her and Buckley on the issue of religion. Right? So Rand is a secularist, right? really dislikes religiosity. Buckley weds, in the piece you talked about, weds his Catholicism to his libertarianism. Right? And in some ways, I think, although a lot of like uh, Paul Ryan and these figures really like Rand, I think that represents the kind of conservative synthesis in America in the late 20th century less well than uh, the figure of Buckley. Because it's actually that fusion of conservative religious family values with free market economics that defines the kind of political agenda of the Republican Party. Whereas Rand 
is sort of so idiosyncratic in her vision of the world that she has her adherence, but isn't, she's not a coalition builder. Right? I mean, one of the things that's interesting about Buckley is he's identifying a kind of political coalition, um, which is what Schlesinger also thinks he's doing, right? But his idea of it is to, I mean, there's that nice piece in there, the paragraph where he says, thank God we got rid of Wallace. Right? Thank God we got rid of the left of the Democratic Party. That's proved that we really, like, we're really good centrists now. So there's just a kind of different ideological valence on both sides of the party. Okay, last thing before we wrap up. There's that kind of interesting passage at the end of Bell where he talks about the fact that there are still these kind of unfulfilled emotions, the kind of anxiety of modern life that people want to work out how to like change the world and don't know what's going to fulfill them. I want you to bear that in mind as we shift in the second half of the course to thinking about domestic politics. Because what we'll now do is move within the kind of politics of the quote-unquote liberal consensus and look at particular issues, housing, welfare spending, education, segregation, sexual politics. And the debates there are about how those problems can be kind of resolved and how the kind of world of the 1950s makes people seek, seek meaning and transformation. It alienates them in certain ways. And so Bell is writing in 1960 that there's kind of actually this ongoing problem of alienation, of a lack of fulfilment. And the parameters there, when we move from the realm of formal politics, political parties, political philosophy, into the world of kind of personal politics and personal experience, will I think also be reflected in our discussions in the second half of the semester. Sound good? All right. Well, I look forward to those conversations in a couple of weeks. Have a good spring break. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. Music.